Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after this saying, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. May God help us to hear his word. Well, good morning, GBC. It's good to have you as we gather again on our YouTube channel to celebrate being the church in these uh, challenging times. I want to say that there are probably many of you who are also watching us from another part of the world. And though we welcome you here, if your country is increasingly seeing a openness and freedom to regather the church, I want to say something I never would imagine ever saying. I hope you will not make our church your church. We love having you here in this COVID season. Uh, we are broadcasting in this way because we cannot right now safely regather. But I want to encourage you to find a local expression of God's family. Be connected, gather together with them. But this morning, we are continuing in our theme of radical dependence. We're looking at Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36. And though we've already had the scripture read for us, and you'll see the text up again, I hope you will not forget the practice of finding the text yourself and following along with me as I share God's word. Before we get into the text, I'd just like to introduce you to an Irishman. His name is Seamus, a beautiful Irish name. Seamus Lawless was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland. And as a young child, his father gave him a copy of a National Geographic map. I remember these myself. He kept this map on his wall as it reminded him consistently of the climbing route of the south face of Mount Everest. That map remained in his bedroom wall, inspiring him as he grew to be a teenager and at the age of 35, Seamus began to train at high altitudes. He even climbed North America's highest mountain, reached the summit of Denali. At the age of 39, he took time off from his job 
Uh, he's a, he was a professor of artificial intelligence at Trinity College in Dublin. And he flew to Nepal with a team of trained professionals to begin his lifetime adventure, a dream of his childhood, to climb the highest mountain in the world. I'm turning 40 in July, he told the Irish press, and my friends are accusing me of having a midlife crisis. On May, uh, excuse me, on May 16 of last year, Seamus Lawless fulfilled his childhood dream and had his own mountaintop experience, the highest mountaintop in the world. He made the summit. And then 15 minutes later, he briefly untethered himself. A big gust of wind took him. And his body to this day has not been found. Every single year, about a thousand men and women trained so that they could have this mountaintop experience, the experience of a lifetime. And for about 300, it actually marked for them the end of a lifetime. The cue is two hours to wait at the top. It's so crowded. And the journey itself, both up and down, is often perilous. There remains 200 bodies scattered around the summit of Mount Everest. But, you know, honestly, if Seamus could speak for himself today, I think he's likely to say, you know what, Pastor? It was still worth it to me. I gave my life doing that which I loved. Now, in our text this morning, three of Jesus' disciples are going to have the experience of a lifetime, their very own mountaintop encounter. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 28. And by the way, in biblical times, mountains were synonymous for the majesty and dominion of God. So Moses, for instance, met with God on Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments there. Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice to God on Mount Moriah. Elijah did battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The temple was specifically built on Mount Zion, and the crucifixion would one moment and one day happen on Mount Calvary. Calvaria is the Latin word for Golgotha or the hill of the skull. Mountains were important. And though they didn't realize it yet, Peter, James, and John were about to have their very own mountaintop experience, an encounter with the majesty and dominion of God. So in verse 28, it says, Now about eight days later, after these sayings. Now, I know some people will want to say to you, hey, by the way, there's a conflict in Scripture because both Mark and Matthew say six days. Luke says about eight days after these sayings. Now, the most important thing I want to know is what sayings? And this is why reading and teaching God's Word expositionally is so important because we read the text in the context. 
And some of you may recall Caleb's message from last week. Remember what he specifically said. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So after Jesus' talk of cross-bearing, after his sayings about life-losing, he took then Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, even in this short phrase, Luke gives us two details unique to his particular narrative, to his gospel. First, Luke uses a definite article, the, not just a mountain, but the mountain. Luke assumes that his original audience would know which mountain. He doesn't say a high mountain like Mark does or like Matthew says. He went to a high mountain, but he specifically says the mountain. So Caesarea Philippi, according to Mark, was the city in which Peter made his great confession about Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah. To whom should we go? You have the words of life. Caesarea Philippi sat at the very foot of Mount Hermon, which was the highest mountain in the region. It was not just a mountain. It was the mountain, a high mountain, according to Mark and Matthew. But what did he do on that mountain? Again, unique to Luke's gospel. He went there to model prayer. This, again, is unique to Luke's gospel. It is one of the major themes of Luke's gospel. There is no record of Jesus having strategy meetings with his team. Jesus' strategy was informed by his prayer life. And that's why John in chapter 12 says, remember his words in verses 49 and 50. For I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say just as the Father has told me. And as Jesus prayed to inform his strategy, to resource his ministry, God's glory was suddenly revealed. Now, this painting is from one of my favorite contemporary Impressionist painters. His name is Earl Mott. I encourage you to look up his artwork if you're interested in dynamics of light and color. As Jesus was praying, it's important for Luke to remind his readers that when we pray, the Father, Lord of all creation, draws near. He draws near as we call out to him. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Literally, his face was different. His face was like another. And even his clothing 
became dazzling white. That adjective that we've translated dazzling was a word that was used exclusively for lightning. In other words, his clothes became blindingly bright. So bright, the men could not look directly at it. It was that bright. So in church language, we call this event the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We get that word from Matthew and Mark's account of this time on the mountain. Transfiguration, or as was shared with us last week, metamorphosis literally means a complete change in form and appearance. It, it, it wasn't just a dress-up change. It was a complete change, not just in appearance, but also in form. From one that is common every day to one that is radiant and glorious. In other words, paint is able to transform a room from you know dark and dingy to bright and what, what do they say? Airy. Or makeup is able to transform a young woman into a K-pop star. But neither paint nor makeup has the power to transfigure. To transfigure is to have an appearance that's entirely different. This is why Mary Magdalene didn't recognize the resurrected Christ. This is why the two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him, because he was glorious, different in form and appearance, radiant and glorious. That's what happens when the glory of God is revealed. But not only did they see his glory, they heard his glory revealed. Verse 30 says, and behold... Two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. They were sharing in his glory. So this is why one of the reasons I, I, I love this painting, because you can see in the center, Jesus is glorious. The glory of God is coming from him. Moses and Elijah are being reflected by his glory and it specifically says they heard him speaking or them speaking they were having a conversation speaking of his departure now now what exactly does that mean i i, I want to suggest to you they were speaking of his cross bearing that word departure is the greek word exodum from which we get our word Exodus. They were speaking of Jesus, specifically putting to death any personal ambition or earthly strategies. And more than that, they speak of it as something that was not passive. Jesus was going to exit in a manner that he would himself initiate his departure, his departure, excuse me, finding my words, he would accomplish, he would fulfill. And how would he do it? Again, this is one of the primary themes in Luke 
In Luke's gospel, not only does Jesus strengthen his ministry through prayer, he shapes his ministry by the words his father whispers into his heart. That's why, friends, it is absolutely impossible for an authentic follower of Christ to be resolutely committed to disobedience. Because the hallmark of the son's relationship that he modeled with the father was obedience. And this is why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote of cross-bearing to the Philippian Christians, wrote in this way, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning, you didn't come to the scene with it. It was given to you when Christ filled the hole in your soul that was left there by the fall. Jesus brings this mind, this attitude with him when he comes to us. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient, here it is, to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, cross-bearing, life-shedding is about obedience. So you and I can't even begin to seek the glory of God without first having an absolute, undiluted loyalty loyalty to the word of God, cross-bearing. And in that activity, we display our allegiance to all things whatsoever he has commanded. And so, for the glory of God demands a response. In verses 32 through 36, we actually see two responses. First, we see Peter's response in verses 32 and 33. Verse 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, here it is, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Isn't that so typical? Peter had just experienced the glory of God, and his first response was, Hey, Jesus, lucky for you we're here, because we're going to help you. Now, he couldn't distinguish who deserved glory. So he just threw them all out there. We'll we'll build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll just settle in here. That was the state of the disciple who witnessed the glory of God. He wanted to just, you know, remain there, bask in his glory, build something. He couldn't figure out who. Build it for everybody. Before even Luke reminds us, his brain was fully engaged. You know, sometimes we have that response. We've had some glorious mountaintop experience. For Sherry and I, we often think of when we first arrived in Malaysia and we went into the, to the Baptist camp at 
Golden Sands. We had some extraordinary times with God and with each other, dreaming what he would have us do in that nation for his glory. We have other memories, going up to Cameron Highlands and praying together with missionaries. Those were mountaintop experiences. And often, if you've been long enough in this faith, you have your own and your tendency then is to develop strategies based upon that experience. You know, the temptation is when we have a mountaintop, glorious spiritual experience is we often speak rather than listening. We often then make recommendations of what God ought to be doing. But fortunately, we have in this text another response not just Peter's response or, can I be honest, Ian's response, but God, the Father's response in verse 34 and 35. As Peter, at the very moment he was saying these things, a cloud came. Now a cloud is symbolic of the awesome, holy, terrifying presence of God. This cloud came and overshadowed them. And this is almost humorous. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. You've seen that movie, right? This ominous music is playing in the background. There's some noise coming behind the door. And the actor makes his way to the door. And you're saying, don't go into the door. They go into the door. They were terrified on this mountain. Their head said, don't go into the cloud. They went in to the cloud and then a voice came out of the cloud this is my son my chosen one now we've already heard last week who others said Jesus was Peter had already confessed who he believed Jesus was and now we have in this text Luke declaring the father himself announcing to these Three men, this is my son, my chosen anointed one, because of who he is in all his glory. The words of my son demand a response. Listen to him. That word listen means to heed or obey. And so you see, friends, when obedience is the right response to the glory of Jesus, listening to our commander ought to be our constant occupation. So let me answer the question you're probably answering or asking, excuse me. No, we don't have too many Bible studies at GBC. The problem we have is not enough of us are gathering with others in a small community to shape our hearts in obedience to the words of Christ. And when the voice had spoken, they looked again and Jesus was alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days, in those days, anything of what they had seen. You may recall from last week's message that it took a command of Jesus to keep the disciples from talking. But this experience, Jesus transfigured hearing and 
seeing a brief snapshot of his true glory was so overwhelming, even Peter shut his mouth. They had no categories for what they had just seen, what they had just heard from what they had just experienced. So let me do a little bit of application from Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in his universe. His armies had defeated all the great regional armies, even Egypt's. Sorry, Ehab. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, just to make his foreign wife happy because she was missing the trees and bushes from her homeland. And he's walking through all the glorious things he created. And he says this in verse 30 of chapter 4. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Okay, this is going to come a little closer to home. Which one of us? has not nurtured in our own heart the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. We have, every one of us, been raised as children of Babylon. We've been educated by our fathers and trained by our mothers to go out there and make a name for ourselves. My, my mom, even while I was floundering in school, would, you, would try to encourage me by saying, Ian, dear, one day you are going to make me famous. Now, she, she gave up on that, and now she's with the Lord. But our parents have trained us for this. Our culture affirms us. Seek your own glory. So, so let me just ask you to consider for a moment. Is it possible that as we have pursued our own glory, that has kept us from seeing and knowing Christ as he truly is. In verses 34 through 35, that king glorious majesty suddenly realizes that the God of heaven had brought him low. And he writes, I lifted my eyes to heaven and I blessed the most high. And I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. You know, the hanging gardens can no longer be found. This king was prophetic. And in verse 35, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing compared to his glory. For he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what in the world have you done? God-given suffering helped this proud king reject the pursuit of his own glory. Look up and notice God's absolute supremacy. This Suffering helped him reestablish himself rightly in God's creative order. 
not as a king basking in his own glory, but as God's creation reflecting and celebrating the glory of his creator. And so in verse 37, a new song of glory comes spilling out of the heart of this great king of Babylon. He sings, so now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he will humble. I'm guessing you are a little bit like me as you read your news feed. You may have noticed a rise in global anxiety in our world today, not just over the coronavirus, but also over the civil unrest in the West that just seems to be bubbling up and spilling over across borders. It's almost as if the king of heaven is systematically dismantling global leadership until these proud men and women like Nebuchadnezzar look up and reposition themselves in the light of who God truly is. Martin Luther King Jr. lived in a similar tumultuous time. He was a Baptist pastor in the 50s and 60s who went into the streets to peacefully protest against a social injustice that judged a man by the color of his skin. And probably everyone in the world knows his speech. I have a dream where my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And this pastor, though he is greatly admired today, he actually wasn't in his day. In the 60s, 70%, seven zero percent of Americans disapproved of the crowds that he was creating in the streets of America. On April 3rd, 1968, he was speaking in the headquarters of the Church of God in Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was addressing the status of his, quote, social justice movement. And here's what he said. He said, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter to me because I, I have been to the mountaintop. I don't fear any man, for my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and I just want to do his will. I just want to be obedient. 18 hours later, Pastor Martin Luther King Jr. was shot dead as he left his hospital room. You know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this text only applies to me, but I want to say to you, friends, it applies intensely to me. This past week, I was eating a sandwich. Now, now that I'm far from the circuit stalls, I don't get much Hokkien me. I'm eating a lot more sandwiches. Made with great affection, I need to add. But while I was eating this sandwich, at the very moment I should have swallowed, I inexplicably took a breath. And, and a piece of that sandwich got, got stuck in my windpipe. And I, and I couldn't breathe in enough air to 
cuff it out. I w- it was just stuck there. And my, my face was turning pale and Sherry stood up over me and said, Ian, you know, Ian, are, are you okay? And, and I, I couldn't speak, but I remember having one fleeting thought. I was thinking, is this how it ends for me? You know, pastor dies of avocado and toast. And, and I, I was left in that moment wondering, have I done anything that's worth dying for? Because maybe climbing Mount Everest is, but I guarantee you a sandwich is not worth dying for. Martin Luther King didn't know he only had hours to live. And neither do we. Because we live in a world in which safety is not guaranteed, but death is life is 100% terminal. And at the end of the day, I don't know about you, but I want to live for something. I want to live for something worth dying for. So I'd just like you to consider this brief thought. What, what is one choice I will make this week that is truly worthy of me taking up a cross for? What is one choice that will clearly demonstrate my allegiance, absolute loyalty to the words of Christ? Friends, this question ought to resonate in our hearts and in our minds. How will we respond to the glory of Christ this morning? I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. And in these quiet moments, imagine if you were there, seeing the glory of Jesus, the moment the appearance of his face was altered, even his clothing more radiant. Do you know that as we model his cross-bearing obedience, we too have the promise that we will one day join him in his glory. Our confidence is this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Friends, as your heads are bowed and as you turn into him today, can you truly say, you know without a doubt, Christ is in you because you cannot help but thirst for his words. You cannot help to respond to them in obedience. He is our solid rock. All other ground we choose is like shifting sand. I wonder if you in this moment would turn to him and say, Oh, Lord God, I want to see you and know you. And like Paul, treat everything else in my life like rubbish compared to the surpassing glory of knowing you. Let us, oh God, even while we long to regather, may we find every day opportunity to bear the cross of obedience for the sake of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.